Hello and welcome to the Lebanese Politics Podcast. My name is Benjamin Red. I'm joined this week with uh, by Temur Asari. Uh, Temur, this is a uh, it's a very heavy week that we are going through right now. This is we usually release the podcast on Sunday night at midnight. Uh, this is a special week though uh, because one year ago the port in Beirut exploded. And uh, everything this week really is, is about that. This podcast this week is a, a special episode devoted uh, almost entirely to that. Yeah, Ben, as you say, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a pretty heavy week. We're, we're not going to be going into the news so much this week. We'll quickly go over things, but we're going to be devoting this podcast to a new report by Human Rights Watch. Uh, it's like a 700-page report that basically lays out responsibilities according to state administrations, you know, various bodies from the finance ministry to the Lebanese army, and then goes on to make a set of recommendations. And to talk about that this week, we have Ayam Zub, the Lebanon researcher at Human Rights Watch, and also, full disclosure, my partner. Hi, guys. Thanks very much for having me on the podcast. It is a really a pleasure to have you on the podcast. I uh, um, and we will be getting to this report in just a minute. We we do though just want to have an abbreviated uh, news section uh, because we have a new prime minister designate. Najima Ati was nominated to become you know try to form a government uh, and be- become the next prime minister here in Lebanon uh, last Monday. And so far, it is not going swimmingly. <laughs> It's a, it's a similar situation to the one we had in the past, where is a mishtenein el khamis. If if not Monday, then Thursday. Uh, Najib Miati, like almost every prime minister designate we've had in in the past year, and there have been many, has come in and said, you know, I'm going to try and form this government very quickly because the situation can't handle not forming a government quickly. And we seem to see the beginnings of the stumbling blocks now. Today, he went to the presidential palace. He had a meeting with the president and said that he wished things were going better. He indicated there wouldn't be a government before August 4th. His next meeting is August 5th. So it's, seem, it's starting to look a bit like the things we've seen in the, in, in the year already. Right, right. And, and just to note, we are recording this on, on Monday. And so that was, that was the meeting today that Temor just uh, referenced. Um, but but really, you know, there's a lot of talk right now going on about, oh, can Makati form a government and, and all of these sort of palace intrigue rumors and all the, you know, all of the stuff flying around. But I and that is a legitimate question, right? That that is something that is legitimately worthy of inquiry. However, I, I think much the much more important question is, well, how would Makati actually rule or how, you know, how would how would he act in office? Because as you say, there are all of these reforms that have to go on. You know what kind of reforms are we going to get out of him, and, as well as you know the rest of the political class, which they they have to. Will he be able to you know marshal everybody, bring them together to actually do this stuff? And then and and this raises the question as well, which a lot of people have brought up, is you know Makati is a billionaire. He is Lebanon's second richest man, according to Forbes, uh, behind his brother Taha. So. Does he have the you know the the right perspective on this? Is he going to have the right priorities? Yeah, you know he he has said that he would take a very active uh, hand uh, in in this file. But remember, Lebanon has been in this financial crisis now for like two years, uh, and they haven't done anything. What is remaining, especially on the finan- on the financial side, is allocation of losses. So the question is, will the billionaire two-time former prime minister who's enmeshed in a web of banking interests and business interests distribute losses fairly? Uh, that is the serious question, isn't it? Right. He's going to be, if he's going to be choosing winners and losers, what, is, is, is he going to be one of the winners and losers that he's choosing? I, 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 I don't know. One would expect that some of his billions are still here in Lebanon. Other than the designation of Miati, it's been quite a fiery week um, in, in, in two ways. I mean, first of all, we had serious, massive wildfires break out last week, uh, late last week, and, and go, you know, burn over the weekend in northern Akkar in several areas. As we speak now, there are wildfires that have renewed in, in many parts of the country, including in Deir al-Amar. So we're looking at a 
a really early fire season and a really big fire season. If you recall, we had those fires two years ago before the protests that people still talk about to this day. They were calamitous. They burned for many days um, and eventually were put out by the rain. It seems like no such rain is coming now. We still have a long way to go in this fire season. At least one person has died trying to put out these fires in northern Akkar. Pleas have again been made to, to countries, uh, including Cyprus, to help put them out. Uh, but so far, it seems like Lebanese authorities are, are going this alone. We have seen massive amounts of forest burns, and there's some images that are really striking. I mean, just sort of a wasteland landscape up north. Yeah, and, and you will remember, and I, I think this might end up being kind of a theme uh, uh, during this episode, you'll remember two years ago, one of the big issues that everybody had was this just absolute failure of the state to respond. Um, and it seems in the intervening two years, not a whole lot has been done. Uh, uh, we, uh, the situation is still uh, roughly the same, it seems, as far as preparedness goes. So again, we have a problem of a state not living up to its commitments. Same thing as uh, two years ago. And in a similar sort of theme of the lack of a state, we had just yesterday this uh incident of these clashes in Khaldi, uh, this town about 30 minutes south of Beirut by a main highway. This was basically uh, in the clashes yesterday, we had sort of at least three people killed, but the death toll then was sort of put at five. We had several people injured. Um, and this is a, an issue that goes back a year. Last year in late August, there were clashes in Khaldi. Uh, several people were, were, were killed then, including a 14-year-old boy. Over the weekend, we had a point-blank assassination of a Hezbollah official who was accused of being involved in that killing. Um, and then during his funeral yesterday, his funeral procession, we had gunfire uh, at that funeral procession. We then had clashes going both ways. Several people killed. The army intervened. Um, and, and things seem to have gone sort of back to normal now, a sort of tense kind of normal. But it doesn't appear that there's been any kind of actual resolution to this. Yeah, uh, absolutely. And honestly, I, I wish that we we had more time to talk about all of this stuff because all of these things deserve like really deep dives. Uh, we could talk about inflation numbers that came out this week. We could talk about a number of other things that are going wrong in this country right now. But I, I think for this episode, we really want to get to the subject matter at hand the port anniversary and obviously this uh, uh, report here. Now this week, we don't know exactly what's going to happen Tuesday and Wednesday, but there there are protests, there are marches. Uh, the victims' families have come out and basically said the gloves are coming off this time. It's been a year and it's been a fucking year and nothing's been done. Um, we honestly don't know what's going to happen over the next uh, couple of days. But what we'd like to do, uh, you know, uh, for the rest of this podcast is talk about let's go back to why we're here and why we're talking about this in the first place. And how did we even get here and, and who's responsible for this and, you know, what went wrong? And I uh, you you have this just absolutely massive report uh, that, that you, you put together. It, it, it's seriously yeah, uh, 700 pages, something like that. Very, very detailed, well-documented. Can, can you go through and, and just sort of give us the top line of what you set out to find and then what, you know, what you actually did find? Thank you, Ben. So the idea for the report came from the competing narratives around who was responsible for the blast, what happened in the lead up to the blast, what actions various officials took. The narrative was being controlled by officials deflecting blame off of themselves and blaming others. So we wanted to reclaim that narrative. We wanted to base the narrative on evidence. So we divided our investigation into three parts. The first part is how did the ship carrying the ammonium nitrate get to Beirut's ports? The second question we set out to answer is which Lebanese officials were aware of the existence of the ammonium nitrate on the ship and then in Beirut's port? What was their responsibility to take action? And then what actions did they take or fail to take to protect the public from the dangers posed by the ammonium nitrate? And then the last part of the investigation was what triggered the explosion on August the 4th. So we can go through um, the narrative and sort of lay out the responsibilities in each of these three sections of the report. 
But I want to you know, preface this discussion by saying that we, we also did case study into corruption at the port because we just wanted to show the context in which all of the, these events were happening. And this is, most of this isn't our original work. We really built on the work conducted by investigative journalists that have spent more than a decade uncovering corruption at the port. And we situated this mess with the Rosas, the ship carrying the ammonium nitrate, and then why, how the ammonium nitrate stayed in the port for as long as it did and in the state that it was in uh, for so many years. Um, just to give a summary of, of this case study into the port, we found that mismanagement and corruption were so rife at the port but that this was by design. The political parties have intentionally uh, kept the structures and organizational structures and management structures of the pork so ambigu ambiguous and so vague so as to allow them to install their party loyalists in key position and siphon off resources that are supposed to go to the state, but that instead go to them and their loyalists. But we also found that this chaos at the port enabled various nefarious entities to bring in illicit goods into the country, dangerous goods into the country, without any inspection. Um, we spoke with a shipping employee who described that the various uh, bribes and kickbacks that various individuals have to pay to customs and port officials in order to get literally anything through. He really stressed this thing that there's no state at the port. It's just a bunch of people who are there to make money. There's no uh, formal way through which goods are, are searched. And you can basically bring anything into the port or even take it out of the port if you bribe the right people. Right. So that's the environment into which the Rosas entered. I mean, the port, as you were saying, this, this structure of sort of everyone being not responsible and also somehow responsible at the same time. For listeners, I mean, the port was, I think, run by a, a committee called the Temporary Committee for something like 20 or 30 years since the Civil War. And it's part of that Lebanese thing of always having these temporary measures that end up being forever. Yes, this temporary committee has been ruling the or managing the port since 1993. And it has positions designated for various political parties. So it was essentially what one researcher described it to us as the first muhasasa that took place after the civil war in terms of dividing the spoils of state institutions among the various political parties. So then take us to the Rosas. In your report, you sort of raise questions about the uh, the reason the Rosas came here, you know, the, the official narrative that this was passing through Beirut on the way to Mozambique. Take us into that a little bit. Right. So f for this section of the investigation, we really set out to see whether the widely reported narrative of why the ship was in Lebanon holds. So the widely reported narrative regarding the arrival of the Rosas is that the ship came to Lebanon carrying 2,750 tons of ammonium nitrate that were ultimately bound for Mozambique. But the ship came to Lebanon's port to load seismic equipment that it was then meant to deliver to Jordan before traveling onwards to Mozambique. The widely reported narrative was also that uh, the owner of the ship was a Russian national called Igor Grishushkin, and that the owner of the ammonium nitrate was a company called Savaro Limited, which was a UK-registered company registered as a chemical trading company. However, upon greater examination, it's clear that none of these assertions were true. Uh, we really built here on the work done by incredible investigative journalists in Lebanon and abroad, including the work of Firas Hatoum and the OCCRP, um, who really raised very important questions around um, the ownership of the Rosas and the ownership of, of the ammonium nitrate. So let's examine those claims one by one. The first claim is that the ship the Rosas was here passing through Beirut in order to load seismic equipment that the Ministry of Energy had used in some uh, project and taking them to Jordan. However, the Rosas was already at capacity and hmm. there was no way that any of that seismic equipment, which included big trucks and very heavy machinery, were going to fit on a ship that's already at capacity. 
uh, and experts have further described that the Rosas was not what they call a roll-on, roll-off ship, which means that it isn't suitable for carrying uh, vehicles, in this case, this, the, the trucks used in the seismic imaging in Lebanon. And so that really raises questions as to you know, how did anybody think that it was possible for the Rosas and the state and capacity that it was in to handle all of this additional cargo? The second thing is the ownership of the ammonium nitrate. And here, you know, as mentioned, the official narrative is that it belonged to this UK company, Savaro, which is a chemical trading company. But as investigative journalist Firas Hatoum uncovered, this company is actually a shell company with links to two Syrian businessmen who have links to uh, Bashar al-Assad's regime. And one of those individuals has been sanctioned for aiding his brother, who was also sanctioned by the U.S. government, for procuring ammonium nitrate in late 2013 for the Syrian regime. Add to that the issue of the ownership of the ship. So it was widely reported that the owner, that the owner was this Russian national, Igor Grishushkin. But also due to the work of the OCCRP, they uncovered that the true owner was actually a, ma- a Cypriot national called Manoli, uh, who they say uh, was the owner of the ship, the Rosas, when it arrived to Beirut in November. And this is important because Manoli reportedly owed almost a million dollars to a bank in Cyprus, FBME, which is a a Lebanese-owned bank that has been sanctioned by the U.S. for dealings with Hezbollah. So we have two separate links to Hezbollah. So we spoke with Manoli, and although he has publicly denied being the owner of the Rosas at the time that it entered Beirut, he then provided us documents that contradicted what he was saying provided us documents that show that up until November the 28th, 2013, he was the owner of the Rosas. The ship had entered Beirut's port on November the 21st. And here also there are a bunch of questions that can be raised that we unfortunately didn't have too much time to delve into, but uh, related to the ownership of this ship. So this Manoli owned the ship until the 28th of November 2013. And then this Russian national Igor Grushushkin bought the ship from him. But by that point, the ship had already been impounded in, in Beirut. And so Igor Grushushkin paid 20, 000, the last installment, the $20,000 remaining for the cost of the ship on the 28th of November, after the ship had already been impounded, and then took no apparent effort that we were able to see to retrieve the ship. Hmm. That also raises quite a few questions. Okay, and so that that kind of takes us to this point where the Rosas is in Beirut. It arrives, it gets impounded. How does that happen? And and then here, I think, is where we start to see the Lebanese paper trail. And this is what you kind of lay out in this report, going ministry by ministry. Take us through this paper trail. What happened? Who was responsible? Why did this stay here so long? So after the ship entered Beirut's ports, they tried to load the seismic equipment onto the ship. But of course, it was already at capacity and the ship was already in pretty bad shape. And so the parts of the ship began to buckle under the pressure of this additional seismic equipment. So they couldn't load it, so they had to unload the material again. But then the ship inspection service did an inspection of the ship after the damage that this new equipment had caused and found the ship not to be seaworthy and not to be in compliance with Lebanese and international maritime safety regulations. And so they couldn't allow it to leave the port. Soon after that, two companies, oil and gas companies, claimed that uh, the owner of the ship owed them uh, some, some debts. And so they put in a request with the enforcement department in Lebanon to impound the ship uh, due to the owner's unpaid debts to these two companies. This is there to confuse. Yes. So we're in December 2013. The ship is impounded in Lebanon. Neither the owner of the cargo nor the owner of the ship have made any attempts to retrieve it. The crew are basically stranded on this ship. Uh, And they uh, started seeking legal assistance from a Lebanese law firm to say, let us leave this ship. We're stranded on the ship. The owner has abandoned the ship. Uh, We have no money. He hasn't paid us. We have no food. And we're stuck on a ship with all of this potentially very dangerous material. 
So the crew wasn't allowed to leave the ship because of regulations that state that ships can't be unmanned. So the number of crew on the ship was greatly decreased, but five, uh, the captain and four other crew members had to remain on the ship. So they enlisted the help of a Lebanese law firm, Barudi and Associates, to try to help secure their release uh, off of the ship and then secure their release to their respective countries of origin. In its efforts to secure their release, the Barudi law firm sent communications to the Ministry of Public Works, which supervises the port, and in particular, the Directorate General of Land and Maritime Transport within the ministry. So they sent letters to this, uh, to this Directorate General describing the risks posed by the ammonium nitrate. Now, some of the risks that they described were inaccurate, such as the, you know, they claimed that uh, if the if the ammonium nitrate gets into the water, it would cause an explosion. Uh, I'm not sure where they got that information from, but they outlined other risks, such as the, uh, the fact that ammonium nitrate was combustible, that it had caused very deadly explosions in other parts of the world. And they even attached a 16-page Wikipedia entry that's titled Timeline of Major Ammonium Nitrate Disasters, where they list all of the places in the world where ammonium nitrate has exploded and caused massive damage and fatalities. So they sent this information to the Directorate General of Land and Maritime Transport. And then the Director General responds back to the firm, reciting all of the risks that the firm had identified and saying that they were trying to solve the issue. Now, we then have the communications between him and the case authority. The case authority is basically the Lebanese state's lawyer. It represents uh, the Lebanese state in international and local judicial proceedings. So let's think of it just as the state's lawyer. So this director general sends communication to the case authority, asking them to go to the judiciary and ask the judge to authorize them to remove the material from the ship and also resell the material. And he sends three letters to the case authority. However, in each of these letters, he describes the risks posed by the ammonium nitrate as limited to the fact that the ammonium nitrate was on a ship that was at risk of sinking. So he said things like, if it you know, goes into the water, it would uh, pollute the environment, it would damage uh, in the maritime ecosystem and na maritime navigation safety. But he didn't say the fa that, that this could cause a massive explosion as had been outlined in this multiple page annex, which was sent to him and, and outlined the dangers. Yes, exactly. And not only sent to him, he responded acknowledging all of the points raised by the law firm. So he right. can't say that he didn't know the dangers posed by the ammonium nitrate. Yet, one, he failed to accurately communicate the threats posed by the ammonium nitrate to the case authority, who then, of course, didn't communicate the correct threats to the judge, mm. because that's the information that they had. And second, they didn't launch any investigation into what this material was, what are the dangers posed by it, even though you have a law firm saying, in Texas, this killed several hundred people. We, we saw no evidence whatsoever that they took the threat posed by the ammonium nitrate seriously. And in fact, it seems like they misled, either intentionally or unintentionally, I don't know, misled the judiciary in uh, terms of the risks posed by the ammonium nitrate. Who signed off on this? Was this Abdul Hafiz al-Qaisi, the head of the, the authority at the time? Did it go to a ministerial level? What do we know about that? At this point, the communications were being received and sent by Abdul Hafiz al-Qaisi, who is the Director General of Land and Maritime Transport at the Ministry of Public Works and Transports. Okay. And so then what happens at that point? We get to the cases authority, they're misinformed. Where do we go from there? Then the case authority goes to the judge of urgent matters, relays the information that they received from the ministry, and ask the judge to uh, refloat the ship because it's at risk of sinking, you know, remove the material, the cargo, off of the ship, and then authorize the sale or re-export of the material. So the judge comes back to them and says, he gives them authorization to first move the material off of the ship and store the material in a suitable place that the ministry chooses and place it under the, ministri the ministry's uh, guardianship or protection. So he didn't specify where the ministry should store the material. He said, find a suitable place 
for it and then put it under your guardianship because the, the material still has an owner at this point. And then he authorizes them also to refloat the ship, as in remove the ship from the water because in the letters sent to him, they told him that the ship was at risk of sinking. And then he rejected uh, offering authorization to sell or re-export the material for lack of jurisdiction. Okay. That judicial order was on the 27th of June, 2014. That was from the judge of urgent matters. So the port authorities start in October unloading the material off of the Rosas and placing it where? In Hangar 12, uh, which they had designated as the hangar for dangerous material. Literally, the idea there being we have various kinds of dangerous materials from gas to firework cords to fireworks themselves. Let's put them all together. What could go wrong? Exactly. In a, in a hangar which had no safety measures, I, I believe no sprinklers, none of that. Nope. And, and I believe even the lighting fixtures were like exposed and, and weren't, you know, weren't even uh, set up in a way that you know, rises to any kind of safety specifications. Exactly. And there are, I mean, in our research, we saw that there are international guidelines on how to store ammonium nitrate. And a lot of countries also have national regulations on the correct storage of ammonium nitrate. Needless to say, the Lebanese authorities violated all of those uh, safety regulations. Does Lebanon have safety regulations on... Not that we were able to find. I think that that's a very telling response. Not that we were able to find. Not a yes or no, but... <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so they stored this material in this hangar. Mm -hmm. And even as they were unloading the material mm -hmm. into the hangar, you had a customs official, Name Brax, already raising warnings that the port didn't have appropriate facilities to store dangerous material like the ammonium nitrate. Okay. So he said that they should inform the competent security agencies, i.e. the army, in order to deal with the situation. Needless to say, nobody heeded Namibrax's warning. Over the years, he sent three other warnings, none of which were heeded. So the material now, we're in October 23, October 24th of 2014, and the material is placed unsafely in this poorly secured uh, hangar, hangar 12, in the middle of the port, middle of the city, densely populated area, etc. Uh, a few weeks later, Al-Qaisi, the director general of the Directorate General of Land and Maritime Transport, then sends another letter to the case authority saying, you know, that the, the ship is at risk of sinking, it'll pollute the environment, it'll damage maritime safety, and the material is in, in the hangar is dangerous, so let's sell this material. Let's go back to the judge and request authorization once again to sell the material. He didn't explain exactly what the risks caused by the ammonium nitrate were. He focused on the risks caused by the ship sinking. So here the state's lawyer gets this communication and responds to Al-Qaisi saying, if you had properly implemented the judge's June 27 order, then the ship shouldn't be in the water because he told you to refloat the ship. And the danger posed by the ammonium nitrate should have ceased because you described the risk as being posed by the fact that it was on a ship that was sinking. So it's like, now it's not on a ship that's sinking, so where is the danger coming from? There is no apparent response that we were able to find from Al-Qaisi to this communication by the case cases authority. And for a couple of years, the communication between the ministry and the case authority stops and is resumed then when Finianos, Yusuf Finianos, becomes Minister of Public Works. And he sends, I believe, three letters that we were able, that we were able to find requesting that the case authority take additional measures in order to sell the ship and its cargo. Now here, what we thought was really bizarre is that why did the port authority keep insisting on selling or re-exporting the cargo when the measure that they could have unilaterally taken themselves was store it in a way so that it wouldn't pose a danger to public safety? But we saw, we saw no indication whatsoever that they tried to improve the conditions of the ammonium nitrate storage. Instead, they kept uh, sending these requests to the judiciary to sell or re-export the material. We don't know why that is. It's possible that they were somebody was seeking to profit off of it, or they knew that you know, this would prolong the, the situation of having the ammonium nitrate at the port. Who knows? But they had authority to secure the material, and we didn't see any indication that they tried to do that. 
those are some major red flags there. Exactly. So the the section in the report here is titled Profit Not Protection. Why were they not trying to secure the material and instead focused on an avenue that would generate money? And then the really baffling thing is the judge of urgent matters kept saying he doesn't have the jurisdiction to, to sell. So what did the case authority then do on the request of the minister Finianos? They went straight to the enforcement department, Dairititin Fees, asking them to sell the ship and the cargo. By that point, the ship had become a shipwreck. And there is a legal text that allows the enforcement authority to sell shipwrecks. And so the uh, enforcement authority authorized the sale of the shipwreck, not the cargo, and appointed an expert to go and appraise the shipwreck to see what they should sell it for. Now, the ministry, after having for years tried to get this measure done, refused to pay the 700,000 Lebanese lira to the expert that the enforcement authority said should be paid before he begins his work. The ministry kept saying, no, we won't pay him until after he does his work. And the enforcement department said, no, you need to pay him 700,000 Lebanese lira before he starts his work. So the, the first experts uh, declined to, to do the job before being paid, and then they had to appoint a second expert. He also faced several, you know, several months of delay and difficulties before he was able to get to the port in order to do the inspection on the shipwreck. Right. It cast doubt on the authenticity of the requests and the urgency to, to sell the shipwreck and the material, because you know, they, they had been trying to do this for years and they kept sending letters to the case authority and the judiciary saying, this is urgent, this is urgent, this is urgent. And then as soon as they're authorized to do it, they then don't pay 700,000 Lebanese lira, which at the time was just under $500, to enable the expert to do his job and then move forward with the sale. Yeah, I uh, the the question for me here is like, does this speak though to anything nefarious or does this just like, bureaucratic incompetence. And this is a sort of unknowable question, right? Exactly. We're not able to attribute intent, but all of the evidence taken together really raises a lot of red flags and questions around what the intention of the ministry was. Right. And so here we've kind of gone through the public works ministry aspect of this. Where does the finance ministry come in and and the Lebanese army as well? I mean, we're now several years later. So the finance ministry is the ministry responsible for overseeing the customs administration. And the customs administration is responsible for uh, goods coming into the country. We, through evidence, through documentation, can see that high-level customs officials were warned repeatedly about the dangers posed by the ammonium nitrate. The first uh, warning that they received was from Colonel Joseph Scaff, in February of 2014, while the ammonium nitrate was still on the ship. So he said in a letter to various high-level customs officials that this ship was carrying ammonium nitrate, ammonium nitrate was very dangerous and potentially explosive, and so the ship should be moved back from Beirut's port onto the breakwater so as to protect the public. The ship and the material on it should be placed under the supervision of the security entities at the port. The port's had several security entities, including the Lebanese army, general security, state security, and uh, customs itself has its own um, security apparatus. That, that's why some customs officials have military titles. So he, wa- he you know, gave this warning. In response, um, there was an internal investigation launched by, the, by some customs officials into why ammonium nitrate wasn't declared on a shipping document called the Unified List. This unified list was described by Riyad Baisi, an investigative journalist, as the ship's passport. It should list on it uh, goods that that are being transported by the ship, including goods that are prohibited or monopolized, so that the security agencies can then conduct additional scrutiny on these goods. So what this internal customs administration investigation found was that the ship's maritime agent, i.e., it's the you know, Lebanese company that is responsible for the paperwork of the ship in the country, uh, didn't declare the ammonium nitrate on the unified list. So then 
they went so you know one and one part of customs went to the other part that's supposed to receive this document and asked them why weren't you given this document and was the material the ammonium nitrate mentioned on another uh, on a, another shipping document called the transit manifest so initially this other part of customs refused to receive this request for information so it was escalated within customs and then then from the top they gave the orders to comply with this request for information. And what Customs said, the excuse that they then gave for not investigating this violation by the, by the maritime agent is that according to some archaic Customs uh, regulation, goods that are prohibited or monopolized didn't need to be mentioned on the unified list if they were mentioned on the transit manifest of the, of the ship. Okay. Which is a bit bizarre. And then said, and anyway, this, these goods aren't considered prohibited or monopolized because, uh, but their, but their you know, trade in the country is restricted uh, because the nitrogen grade of this material is below 34.5%, which means that it's not uh, considered prohibited or monopolized goods. And mm-hmm. so it didn't need to be mentioned. But this is a bit bizarre because, A, nobody had conducted testing on the ammonium nitrate by that point to know what the nitrogen grade of the ammonium nitrate was. And B, uh, the law doesn't say 34.5%. The law actually says 33.5%. So it's unclear where they got that number from anyway. Um, But anyway, as we later found out, the nitrogen grade of the material was 34.7%, which meant that they were considered um, prohibited and monopolized goods and should have been under the auspices of the army, but we'll get to this in a second. So then customs decided to excuse this violation without any further investigation. So here also this raises a lot of red flags as to, you know, why this material wasn't mentioned on the uh, unified list, and then that nobody was held accountable for this very blatant violation. Right. So going back to Joseph Scaff's letter, he was the first official who warned, customs official who warned of the dangers of the ammonium nitrate. And then Nami Brax, the customs official we just discussed, also sent four different warnings throughout the years, from 2014 till 2017 or 2018, I can't remember the date of his last letter warning that if the ammonium nitrate caught fire, it would have disastrous consequences. But none of these... To who did he send these letters? To high up within customs. All right. And none of these uh, warnings were acted upon. Instead, what the customs administration repeatedly tried to do is go to the judge of urgent matters and ask him to authorize the sale or re-export of the material. Now, as soon as the explosion happened... Customs released these documents saying that they had been sending these repeated letters to the judiciary and the judiciary wasn't responding. That was not the case. The judiciary responded every single time. But there were several problems with the requests filed by the Customs Administration. First is that they filed it in a procedurally incorrect way. And now this might sound like a very innocuous term, like who cares if it's procedurally uh, incorrect when faced with such a you know big danger. Lawyers care exactly. People in yeah the justice ministry they care yeah that matters in a bureaucracy. I mean, of course, and and it's illegal. Like they were mailing in letters to the judge of urgent matters. A judge can't accept requests sent that way, and they know this. The customs authority administration has lawyers, and they constantly deal with the judiciary. They know what the correct procedure to submit requests to the judiciary are. So then the judge responded every time saying that this is procedurally incorrect. Please submit it the right way. And they didn't? They didn't. And noting also that they didn't really also describe the dangers posed by the ammonium nitrate. So as far as the judge was concerned, and there was no reason for him to, to think twice about this request. Right. The other you know, mistake that they made was they kept going straight to the judge of urgent matters. But there was already a case opened in this matter by the Ministry of Public Works and Transport. They were already party to the case. So in in civil disputes, you can't have a third party just come into the case that's already between two other parties, right? So they would have had, there's a special legal procedure to then be included in the case, uh, which they didn't do, which is why the judge kept saying, you need to go speak with the case authority, who is the original petitioner in this case, 
and you know they should submit the request because they were the ones who requested that this material be moved and this material is under their judicial guardianship so we can't let any other party come into the case at this late you know at this stage so to recap customs basically sends things in the wrong way um and in a manner which wouldn't allow for them to to actually address the issue at hand and then the the like cherry on top is that we consulted five very high-level judicial sources, all of whom said that customs did not need judicial authorization to sell, re-export, or destroy the material after it had been left in customs hangars for more than six months. So basically, luzum mayalzam. Exactly. They could have acted unilaterally. Now, one of the judicial sources told us that whether or not the customs administration could have acted with the material without first lifting the judicial guard that the Ministry of Public Works and Transport had over the material was still under study. However, all of the high-level judicial sources said that removing the judicial guard off the material is a very simple administrative procedure that any judge of urgent matters could have done in less than 24 hours and that customs never requested this. Wow. That's just a a staggering level of things, multiple things that went wrong just within this one government agency. And this government agency is overseen by the finance ministry. Was the finance minister aware of this? Was he involved in this? The finance minister at the time, Ali Hassan Khalil, who has been charged. Ali Hassan Khalil's signature appears on one document by the customs administration where they articulate some of, not all, but some of the dangers posed by the ammonium nitrate and explain the circumstances of the ammonium nitrate being in uh, Beirut's port. His signature is on that document. So yes, he was aware of the existence of this hazardous material in Beirut's port. So there's also a lot of talk of the army's responsibility here. They're nominally in charge of national security. Where do they come in? The, the army commander, former army commander Jean Ahouaji is also being sought by the Beirut blast investigator. So there's a very clear legal text in Lebanon. It's the weapons and ammunition law that says that ammonium nitrate with a nitrogen grade above 33.5% is considered uh, material used to make explosives. And therefore, its production and, and trade in Lebanon is restricted. And the law clearly says that any such material should be inspected by the army upon uh, import, and they should also give uh, approval, and they should supervise this material. And they're in the port, the army. They're massively in the port. Military intelligence has an office at the port that's referred to as Maktab Amn al-Port, the office for port security. Right. They are responsible for all security issues in the port related to munitions, violence, drugs, and illicit materials. And they, in 2015, asked for tests to be conducted on this ammonium nitrate to identify their nitrogen grade. Tests were conducted. The tests came back. They were told that the nitrogen grade of this ammonium nitrate was 34.7%. And what did the army command respond? Nah, we don't need it. Mm-hmm. Try to sell it to this other private company in Lebanon. As as uh, investigative journalist Riyad Abaisi says, Habbin Difi, Exactly. Yeah. So they completely brushed off responsibility for this ammonium nitrate, even after tests confirmed that under Lebanese law, it should have been under their supervision. Right. So they viewed that law as sort of a take it or leave it optional type thing is that multiple but, multiple choice yeah yeah but the law was explicit like you have to take care of this the law is very clear so so the next thing in your report then is is the responsibility of, of state security yes so state security is another security agency that has an office at the port and this office at the port was established in april 2019 and tasked with two things one investigating corruption at the port and two, informing the Higher Defense Council, which is the highest security coordination body in the country, of security issues at the port and make recommendations to the Higher Defense Council. So the widely reported narrative or the official state security narrative is that the head of this office at the port, Major Joseph Nadav, was walking around the port one day and then saw a hole in the hangar, looked inside, saw ammonium nitrate, took photos, started an investigation. This isn't true. A confidential source told us that it was Nami Brax who warned uh, Joseph Nadaf about the existence of the ammonium nitrate and also the dangers posed by the ammonium nitrate 
in September of 2019. So he warned him in September 2019. Nami Brax, if you'll remember, is the customs official who repeatedly sent warnings about the ammonium nitrate, none of which were apparently heeded. And so he took it upon himself to inform Nadaf of, of this, uh, of the presence sort of, of in a, He's sort of in a way breaking procedural lines there and, and, you know, going beyond, allegedly, I mean, going beyond sort of what was allowed within, within you know, procedure because of the scale of the, the danger posed. Exactly. And that's why he was a confident, you know, he was a confidential source for Nadaf and they never disclosed his identity. So state security was aware since September 2019. And then the first official documentation that we have confirming that the head of state security, Major General Tony Saliba, was informed was early December 2019. Right. He was informed of the ammonium nitrate and the dangers that they posed. On January 27, 2020, he instructed Nadaf to conduct an investigation into the material and then present his findings to the competent judge. So Nadaf started his investigation and then there was COVID and the port was closed and it took a very long time, but he concluded his investigation on May 28, 2020. And we have the report that Nadaf wrote. And there were several errors contained in the report, including the date of the docking of the ship, the name of the company that owned the materials. There were some errors, but he clearly warned of the dangers posed by the ammonium nitrate. He said that they consulted a chemical expert who said that if this material were to, to catch fire, it would explode with devastating consequences for the port of Beirut. So this warning was very explicit in Nadaf's report. So then he calls Awaidat. Awaidat is the Kassetian public prosecutor. Nadaf called him. Nadaf. Because Tony Saliba in January had instructed him to do an investigation and then submit the findings to the competent judge. Okay. So he called Awaidat. Awaidat asked Nadaf to interrogate two port officials, which he did. He wrote the, the reports and then finalized his investigation on June 1st, 2020 sent one copy to Tony Saliba and one copy to Judge Awaidat. Tony Saliba received it on the 3rd of June, Awaidat on the 4th of June. And Awaidat instructed Nadaf, or state security, to then instruct the port authorities to fix the uh, walls of the hangar, fix the door, uh, and appoint a warehouse keeper for the, for the hangar. So Tony Saliba knew about this material, you know, he, or this, this report was finalized, and he had it on the 3rd of June, 2020. That day, uh, he was having dinner with an advisor of the prime minister, Khudr Talib. And the advisor pressed him several times on corruption issues in the port. And then finally, Saliba told him, both Diab and Saliba dispute what was said. But anyway, that there were hazardous materials in the port, but that the investigation wasn't yet finalized and that he would send it to the prime minister when it was final. This was after the investigation had already been finalized. And Saliba disputes this, that he said this? No. He does not dispute that he said this. I don't think he knew that we had the report. Okay. So to summarize, on the same day that the head of state security re uh, receives the report into this ammonium nitrate at the hangar, he has dinner with an advisor to the prime minister. Which was by coincidence. By coincidence. And informs that advisor that he has in fact, the, that the investigation is in fact not complete. Exactly. And then the first official communication that Saliba sends to the president and the prime minister was not until the 20th of July, 2020. Why did it take more than six weeks in between Nadaf's report being finalized and this information being communicated to the president and the prime minister, particularly given the dire warnings contained in Nadaf's report? Right. And we, we compared both reports and we found that there was one key sentence that was omitted from the report that was sent to the president and the prime minister, which was in Nadaf's report, which is the sentence, this warning that he had, that if the material were to catch fire, it would explode and cause devastating con consequences for the port of Beirut. That is crazy. So they omitted this very explicit warning, but they did say, in, you know, when they were describing what ammonium nitrate is, they did say that the material is explosive and, oh. and highly flammable. But the president and prime minister both received the report at the same time then? So the prime minister's office said that he received the report on the 22nd of July and the president on the 21st of July. And meanwhile, Hassan Diab had been 
told by his advisor about this earlier and had planned a trip to a port that was then cancelled. Can you tell us about that? Yeah, so on this June 3 dinner, this private dinner uh, between Saliba and the advisor, both Saliba and, and Diab dispute the narrative of events. So Saliba says that he spoke with Diab on the phone and told him 2,750 tons of ammonium nitrate, uh, you know, highly right. explosive in the port. Diab says that no, Saliba didn't speak with him. It was his advisor who called and told him that it was 2,700 kilograms, not tons, of TNT that had been seized at the port. Okay. So, but based on this information, Diab decides to go to the port the next day. And he sends that evening his uh, security detail to go and do a security inspection of the area and also speak with state security at the port to get more details. So his security advisor, Colonel Mohammed Abdullah, goes down to the port, speaks with Adaf, calls him and says, the information that you have is incorrect. Um, according to Nadaf, there's 2,700 tons, not kilograms, of ammonium nitrate, not TNT, and it's been at the port since 2013. It wasn't recently seized. So then Diab, the narrative that he told us, is he decides to cancel his visit, and he tasked uh, his security detail to ask state security to finalize a report within days and send it back to him. And then Diab, in the interview with us, told us, I then forgot about it, and nobody followed up. Right. Oof. Yikes. Yeah. I don't even know what to say to that. I mean, yeah. for for a second there, I was like, oh, wow, he took action, went immediately down to the port. But then, no, he learns of something, pushes it off, and then forgets about it. Exactly. E extremely troubling. And so he forgets about it and then eventually does receive something. Then on the 22nd of July, 2020, he receives the state security report that they sent on the 20th of July. And he told us that he sat with Asmar and he read the report and then decided to ask Asmar, who's the Secretary General of the Higher Defense Council, to send this report to the ministries of Public Works and uh, the Justice Ministry to send their recommendations. Now, later on during the interview, we asked him, and, and that's the only action that he took. Mm. So later on in the interview, we asked him, when did you find out that the ammonium nitrate was explosive? And he said, after the explosion. And we asked, how did you find out only after the explosion when the state security report said that it was explosive material? And he said verbatim, I did not go through the 30 pages of the report. I sent it to my security advisor. So he didn't read the report. And two things. Number one is the report was not 30 pages. The report was three pages with six pages of annexes. Number two, the, the fact about ammonium nitrate being explosive was in the second sentence, fourth line of the report. So had he even just read the first two paragraphs, he would have had all of the information that he needed. He would have found out that the ammonium nitrate was in fact explosive. We understand that the prime minister then disputed that he told you this. They didn't dispute that he told us this because this is verbatim, but they said that they didn't mean, so they, he didn't go through it, doesn't mean that he didn't read it, means he didn't go through it in a lot of detail. But again, it was in the first like two paragraphs, the fourth line of, of the report. So if he had read it or gone through it even, he would have known that the ammonium nitrate was explosive. And number two, his office said that he didn't actually mean 30 pages, that it was hyperbole commonly used in Lebanese culture to mean tens of pages. Oh. So we now are pretty much at the end of July. We're basically a couple of weeks from the explosion. What happens in those last 10 days? So the only action that the prime minister took was refer the report to the Justice Ministry and the Public Works Ministry. The Justice Minister didn't get the report till after the explosion because she was away from the country. And the Public Works Minister only received it on the 3rd of August and then allegedly set up a meeting with Hassan Ereitim, the head of the port, um, but we were unable to get confirmation that that meeting occurred or what transpired during that meeting. But that was the only apparent action that Hassan Diab took. The president also uh, received this report and also the only action that he took was then send it to his advisor and say, do what is necessary. Now, the president is the chair of the Higher Defense Council, which, as we said before, is the highest security coordination body in the country. 
and he has the power to unilaterally convene meetings of the Higher Defense Council and add items to the agenda. But he didn't convene a meeting about this issue. He didn't think it was important enough. Uh, and he didn't put it on the agenda of another meeting that they then had on the 28th of July, where they discussed COVID and, and the upcoming STL verdict and uh, an alleged Israeli attack in the South, but didn't discuss the issue of 2,700 tons of ammonium nitrate sitting in the middle of Beirut. And then obviously we know what happened on August 4th itself. Everything, you know, that that some people had been warning about, it actually happened and it exploded for, you know, whatever reasons, uh, causing massive devastation, wiping out, you know, neighborhoods, entire neighborhoods at the Capitol, uh, killing, you know, 218 people, uh, wounding thousands of others. Um, and all of it seems to be based on your work, on your investigation here. Like, you can trace this horrible disaster back to just this series of mistakes in all of these different government agencies that were involved. Yes, exactly. And so the, the point that we are trying to show from this report is not just that these officials individually failed at their responsibility, but that the Lebanese state as a whole failed in its obligation to protect the right to life, which is one of the most basic human rights, and by its actions and its omissions, created an unnecessary risk to life. And we are, you know, a, a bit pressed for time here, but I, I, you know, you then go on in this report to recommend an international investigation. What does that mean? When people in Lebanon hear international investigation, they think the Hariri trial, they think a trial that after more than 15 years brought no real tangible justice. Um, something that was highly politicized and broad sections of the Lebanese population don't even recognize. So how would this be different? What are you proposing here? So first, we need to make a distinction between an international investigation, which is what we're calling for, an and an international tribunal or trial, which we are not calling for. So an international investigation wouldn't replace the domestic investigation because it's not a vehicle for criminal accountability. It's just a mechanism to be able to uncover the truth in an independent, impartial, and credible way, according to the highest international standards, and with enough resources and technical capabilities to be able to really look into all of the aspects of um, why the ship was here, who knew and failed to act, and then uh, what triggered the explosion. So again, they're not, it's not at all replacing the domestic process. It can actually, I mean, in our assessment, it will help the domestic process. Now, how, how will it do that? First of all, it will give Judge Bitar the resources and the technical expertise that he needs and that Lebanon doesn't have. Judge Bitar is currently operating on his own, essentially. He is one judge leading the investigation into one of the biggest crimes in Lebanon's history with some evidence linking it to international trans and, and transnational uh, criminal and terrorist networks. And he's on his own. And he really lacks the technical capabilities and the resources to be able to fully investigate all aspects of this issue. And so an international investigation would give him those resources and that technical expertise. That's number one. Wait, this is, this is something new to me. So he doesn't have additional resources. He doesn't have a budget. He doesn't have extra personnel. So the law of the Judicial Council says that there can only be one judicial investigator investigating this, you know, these big crimes. And Judge Bitar initially, when he was nominated to, to lead the investigation back in August of last year, before someone, one of the conditions that he put forward is that the law be amended so he'd be given a team. That didn't happen, obviously. They didn't think that it was necessary to amend the law to be able to properly investigate one of the biggest crimes in Lebanon's history. Um, and so he's on his own. Now, he has four trainee judges with him. There are some who have disputed the legality of this, but everybody wants the investigation to move forward, so nobody's really using it as a sticking point. But the danger is that then officials who don't agree with the findings of Bitar can use that to then say that the investigation was illegal because he has these four trainee judges working with him. Right. And so the international investigation, as you're describing it, would sort of 
empower him, provide him with resources. What would it do beyond that? So it wouldn't, you know, they wouldn't be one and mm. the same investigation, but ultimately, you know, the ideal is that they'd be working together and any findings of the international investigation would then be carried over to the domestic investigation. The second issue is that they would conduct, or the second benefit is that they would conduct the investigation uh, up to the highest international standards, including in witness protection. Um, so Lebanon doesn't have a witness protection program. Um, so it's not you know, out of the question to think that if there were a witness protection program or some uh, mechanism to protect witnesses, that there may be individuals who will come forward with key information for the investigation. Thirdly, an international investigation would help immunize the current investigation from all of these uh, political interferences and these like, threats and intimidations. So currently, as I said, it's just one judge investigating. Um, and the, I mean, I can't even imagine the kinds of pressures that are on him. We've already been hearing from some of the families of the victims that they've been subjected to intimidation and threats. The families are being subjected to that kind of intimidation. What kind of intimidation is the judge himself subjected to? And if it then comes to it where he's choosing between his own safety and the safety of his family and the credibility of the investigation, I mean, which will he choose and can you really blame him? Um, and so having an international investigation would sort of immunize it. A, there'd be more people. They would be you know, of highly recognized international experts. It would be much harder for the Lebanese officials to strong arm those individuals. The last thing I'll mention about the benefits of the international investigation is also they're not bound by this web of immunities in, in Lebanon because they're not holding anybody criminally responsible or accountable. They are just identifying you know, the narrative, the truth of, of what happened. So everybody would appear before them as a witness, not as somebody who's charged, not as a suspect. They're just speaking to witnesses in order to piece together what happened. So once that information is known, then it would help Bitar in his battle, the battle that he's waging around lifting immunity. Because once the truth is already out there, once we ever, you know, the public knows the evidence uh, implicating each of these officials, it becomes much harder for them to dismiss uh, so, uh, Bitar as, you know, uh, you know, has political motivations or that, the, uh, you know, he's, he's not credible or, or, or that it's all, you know, a, a ploy against them and a conspiracy, etc. Because the evidence will be known. So that's a much stronger hand, uh, you know, card in, in Bitar's hand when he's then going to parliament or, you know, various ministries to lift immunity off of officials who are responsible because all of the public will already know exactly why he's doing that and what the evidence is. That makes quite a bit of sense to me, but at the same time, I I wonder if you can really even have a commonly accepted, credible in international investigation because I I I mean it's not it's not like uh, the UN investigation that predates the STL was entirely just accepted by everyone. You know these things are politicized, especially if certain. Political actors have something to lose from what this investigation is going to find. I, ju I just, in my mind, I just don't see a way around it of, even if you have evidence, it doesn't mean that you're going to be considered credible. How, how do you get around that? So one is by, you know, we need to hold any international investigation and investigators to a very high standard. We need to make, you know, make sure that they're operating at the highest levels of uh, credibility and transparency and independence. I mean, it's not that it's not the case that just because there's an international investigation, then we just remove our hands and say, you know, oh, they, they know what they're doing. There obviously needs to be a watchdog role by civil society, by groups like us, by the families of the victims to ensure that they're doing their work in an independent and credible manner. But it's a, just an additional tool uh, for, for the truth to come out and for justice to, to come out. And, you know, you, you keep raising this precedent of the Hadidi investigation, but there's another precedent that I think is actually much more relevant because the Hadidi investigation wasn't a, U, a UN Human Rights Council authorized investigation, which is what we're calling for. But what was, was the investigative mission sent to Lebanon in 2006 following the July war with Lebanon's approval and request to investigate crimes committed by Israel during the 2006 war. So if Lebanon and the Lebanese government and the Lebanese public 
can trust an international investigation to look into crimes committed by Israel in Lebanon, you know, why can we not trust it then to investigate crimes committed by Lebanese politicians against Lebanese public? You, you make a lot of really, really good points. Um, and thank you for just going through, walking us through all of these findings that you have. Um, I'm going to continue looking at this report because I have not been through all 700 odd pages of it yet, uh, full disclosure. Uh, there, there's just a whole lot of documentation as well in there. Uh, tons of stuff, which is available on your website, humanrightswatchhrw.org. So if if any of our listeners, you want to take a look at this report, take a look at some of the uh, documents that uh, they have and they have translated, please do uh, go ahead. It is a, a, a huge resource for anybody who is interested in this topic specifically. And thank you so much, Aya, for, uh, for coming on and walking us through all of that. Thank you guys for having me. Yeah, thank you so much for coming on. All right. And that does it for us for uh, this episode of the Lebanese Politics Podcast. I'm Benjamin Red. I'm Taimur Azhari. And I'm Aya Marzou. And this has been the Lebanese Politics Podcast. Politics Podcast is brought to you by myself, Nizar Hassan, Benjamin Red, produced behind the scenes by Susan Wilson, and the music is by Omar Elfil.